Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, kids. You are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, September 11, 2018, the 17th anniversary of one of the worst tragedies to ever happen in New York City and the entire country. Well, I'm going to let people more qualified than I pay homage and tribute to that. But here, in our own way, we're going to pay tribute to this day with a fantastic guest artist interview. And in breaking a little bit of tradition, I didn't pick the opening song this week. Our guest artist did. And uh, you'll get a little bit of background on the artist with this song and the next. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
That song you just heard was by Ismael Miranda. It's called Se Casa La Rumba, and it's from the Abran Paso album in 1972. We open with that song because it was a great influence on our guest artist this week, who actually started out as a musician, but as time went on, and as many of us know, the road to our life takes many different turns, he en ended up in a very different place than where he began. But this was one place where he stayed a little while. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Whoa, we could not have played two more totally different genres and styles of music. 
Latin dance music, and this synth-pop industrial gothic wall of sound. Wow! Well, our guest artist this week actually played guitar on the song that you just heard. It was by a band called Factor Red. The song was called Atrophy. It was released as a single in 1992. And if you were in the Pacific Northwest at, the, at that time, you may, may very well have seen that band play. Well, I'm sure you are all wondering, who could this guest artist this week be? Well, wonder no more, kids, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Everybody. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! I'm sitting here with a writer, arts advocacy, and arts administrator, oh, the tongue twister of the arts here, Charlie Vasquez. Yes. Hello, hello. When you signed the release, I saw that you put yeah. a Bronx address, and I was like, yeah, you grew up in the Bronx like me. Did you? I did. I was born and raised in the Bronx. Ah, so you're so New Yorican like me. I'm a New York. I'm a Bronx New Yorican. Wow. I'm from. I'm from. Uh, what Puerto, hospital? From Puerto Rico, New York. Puerto uh, Rico, New York. I yeah. love it. <laughs> uh, Fordham Hospital. So it's it's no longer there. It was. It's it's now the parking structure at uh, Fordham Road and Southern Boulevard, across the street from the Botanical Garden. Oh wow. So uh, yeah, we live down the down the road on Southern Boulevard. Um, By the Bronx Zoo. By the Bronx Zoo, so that's the first neighborhood I lived in. Then we moved up to Fordham Road, uh, where uh, where it meets Arthur Avenue. We moved to the other side of the zoo and botanical gardens to Allerton Avenue area, where I, I live now. So my mom still lives on Allerton Avenue in the apartment I grew up in, and I live off of Pelham Parkway. Where does your dad live? My dad passed away. Not in 9-11, I hope. No. Oh, thank God. No, no, no. Because you said he worked at the World Trade Center. That's, that's a little apocalyptical oh, my God. discussion if oh, you'd like to God. have oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> a different, different apocalypse. No, no, whenever someone says, the, you know, the, the old no. World Trade Center, I'm just like... <gasps> no, he worked there from about 1976 through about 1980. Okay. So, um, but I remember going to the World Trade Center. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I remember going to the top on the observation, observation. deck a few times. Oh. It was an incredible It was amazing. Thing. And the new one's pretty cool, too. So yeah, I the new one's say, cool, too, but, yeah. you know... They should have built two. That's what I'm going to say about it. A lot of us New Yorkers they, felt they, that way. I felt that way two. in the beginning, and I didn't like the uh, renderings of the, the new WTC. But I have to tell you, I get down there once every few months. I was down there, actually, two days ago for another event. And I just kind of walked through to kind of check on the progress of the buildings. And it's coming. It's, it's rather beautiful there. The, the way they reinvented that whole space... And they created the memorials, you know, at, at the footprints of the previous Twin Towers. It's actually pretty, it's pretty. It's but uh, but yeah. I, I still wish those ugly monoliths were still there. Anyway, <laughs> be that as it may. Mm -hmm. um, where are your parents from in PR? Well, interestingly, my father was from Juanadias, Puerto Rico. So that's kind of the, the, kind of the, the municipality just east of Ponce on the south coast. And my mother's Puerto Rican family is from the Corozal area. That's where my mother's family's yeah, from. Yeah, so that's sort of west of the capital. Oh, my God. Um, so we're from the north and south. And my mother's mother, interestingly, was actually Cuban. 
Huh. Um, so I'm part Cuban also, but I grew up with my Puerto Rican relatives. I didn't really grow up with my Cuban family. After the interview, we're going to have to share some uh, family names on mm-hmm. your mom's side to see who knows. Maybe yeah. we're primos. It could in, be. in some way. It could be. Corozal. Not, not, no one's from freaking Corozal. Well, that's interesting because I, uh, the, the, the reason I learned that was that I started excavating all of these family histories from my mom, who, like me, uh, was always, you know, eavesdropping on, on, on the elders when she was younger. Um, and now that mostly everyone has died off and my mother's doing very well and she has a great memory, I've been collecting all of these stories from her, which are part of the new cycle that I'll be reading from later. Oh, great. That, ex- that sort of explore, now that I travel to Puerto Rico about once a year, I was just there last week, um, you know, I've made it a point to actually go to these places all this time later to see, you know, where it is that my family came from before, before they became New Yorkers. Well, that work sounds fantastic. Yeah. But we're going to get that to, back to that in a little bit. Sure. But one thing I want to um, ask, because I ask this for everybody when we mm-hmm. begin our chat, is where and how did we meet, Charlie? We most likely met, um, Just I just know my pattern because I work so much, and we probably met at a cultural event um, with of Latino interest. I'm guessing at the La Casa Azul bookstore because we seem to know a lot of writers in and, common, and like in Dalma, Damalanos Figueroa, Figueroa, Maria Ponte, great writers, yes. So, Bobby Gonzalez. Um, I'm sure we kind of crossed paths there and then probably linked up on social media and just sort of stayed in touch over the years. As but, people will want to do now, yes. you become Facebook friends, you become even Facebook though you only friends. met each other in person like three um, times. Yeah, yeah. So it's an it's an so interesting way. It's an interesting way to build connections. Getting back yep. to you, mm-hmm. do you have siblings? I do. I'm the oldest of five. The oldest of five. Wow, big family. Two two marriages. My mom mm. had two marriages. So oh, like the Brady Bunch of Puerto Ricans. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Did you come from an artistic or education-oriented family, which creativity yeah, encouraged? Um, in a very working-class way. Neither of my parents. My parents both graduated high school. They're high school graduates. But so my mom did um, do a little bit of community college in the late 70s, early 80s, um, but that she kind of stopped that to sort of care for the family. My father, no, but they're just both organically very intelligent people, or he was, she still is. Um, my mother, much more on the cultural event, on, on the cu- cultural end of things. Like she really enjoys uh, Egyptian art exhibits and going to museums and stuff like that. My father was had a very scientific mind, um, so he was really into National Geographic magazine. So you know, having those two influences on top of everything else that we had in school, there was always stuff around the house to kind of. Breezer, but they weren't necessarily like academics or in- intellectuals. They were just sort of curious people. You know. So was reading encouraged in your house? Was uh, creative play was, encouraged? It was. I had a natural knack for stories and books just at a young age, and I sort of pursued that on my own. And then it's no surprise that I became a writer and storyteller later in life, but that was something that I was attracted to from elementary school. Were you alone in your siblings with this artistic bent? Or were you, or were you let's say, the, the writer sheep of the family or the creative sheep? I was the only one in my family. I think we all had artistic interests. 
Um, I think I'm the only one in my family who decided to curate his whole life mm. around that. The only one who's really pursued it? As, right. Ah, uh, gotcha. Right. How hard was it for you to express yourself artistically or any, mm. other, any other way that was different than mm -hmm. the family norm right. when you were a child? Did you always know that you were going to be some kind of an artist? Was that like yeah, a burning I was a thing Yeah, I was a musician. So, I mean, I was on one side, I, on one end, I was this, the, it's an interesting story how I became a writer, and I can, I can do it, explain it to you very briefly. I pursued music as a kid. Oh. Uh, and I, 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 simultaneously, I liked Jack London and Edgar Allan Poe and the Ichabod Crane stories. And you know, I had a side of me that loved imaginative and even scary stories. Well, a bit of the goth man Totally you. goth. I was goth by the time I was like seven. <laughs> so when I was 17, I left the Bronx to live with my family on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon first, where my mom's family was. And I, as soon as I graduated high school, I joined a band, an electronic, kind of like an industrial electronic dance band. And then that spiraled into like a 10-year career of touring and recording. Really? And playing with different groups. Wow. Now, wow. Who were some of the bands that, were you like an opening band for like we other opened, bands? Yeah, we opened for um, Frontline Assembly, which was a really big industrial band out of Vancouver. But we were into Skinny Puppy oh, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Coil from the UK and kind of the, the much more darker soundtracky mm. stuff. Did you used to listen to the Smiths a lot? I did, but that was more of my guitar leaning uh, taste. So I've always liked guitar music, but I've always liked electronic music because... I think as someone who was Latino and who grew up biculturally, um, it, was, it was easy for me to find music that sort of came from an American filter, like rock and roll, blues-based rock and roll. It was easy for me to identify with, with that, but it was also easy for me to discard it mm. and sort of explore a whole different modality of of music making. So I'm switching from one language to another. I never felt confined. So, but yeah, the music, as a songwriter, I started keeping a, a little notebook, like a sketchbook, like an artist sketchbook, that I would write lyrics in. And then I discovered my love, I rediscovered my love for storytelling, which I discovered as a, as a kid, as a reader, I rediscovered it as a writer who was now telling stories meant to be put to music. And then eventually the writing component just took over and I decided to stop playing music to pursue writing. So you had been writing stories since you were a kid? I've been re yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I think when I was a teenager, I really started to pay attention to my feelings and putting them on the page. It was really bad. And then that became, well, of course it was. You were a teenager. Poetry, you, were you, know? a teenager? I burned it in the fireplace. We all, yeah. we all start somewhere. Yeah. Okay, so did you go, did you go to an arts-oriented college? Well, no, did you go to college at I all? Went, well, actually, yes, I did. I did go to. I attended Portland State University for not for very long, because uh, I went back on the road, and then I uh, signed up for studio recording. I went to a studio recording school. It was actually a project. Uh, it was an accredited project uh, through Portland State University at this independent recording studio in Northeast Portland, and that was about the time that analog and digital mm. technology were starting to split. So we actually learned both. So this is well, around 1990? Uh, 92 or so, 93. Mm. So we learned reel-to-reel -reel and then some of the earlier uh, digital audio tape that. I was really keen at that time, as before I started writing a lot, I was really keen on getting a technical job in the recording industry. I was starting to look at California at that, at that time and maybe even coming back to New York. But then writing happened and life happened and I went in another direction. So you spent a large part of your formative years on the West Coast? 
Yeah, from age 17 through 35. So you came of age on the yeah. West Coast. I got to the West Coast. I was a boy when I got to the West Coast. Well, yeah, 17 um, is still a boy. When I Sorry. left the West Coast, I you was a man, a man, a man. Or working in that direction. <laughs> but uh, no, I came of age on the West Coast. Wow. And it was very intentional. So how, really, yeah. why was that intentional? I had sexual things to work out. I had a lot of, I had to figure out who I was. And I really kind of wanted to get out of the Bronx so you thought that you could not have worked that out here on the East Coast? It would have been harder, I think. You think? Yeah, especially matters relating to sexual identity and, and coming in, coming to terms with my queer feelings and sort of my... So my, you thought it would be... And there's such a big queer community and a big Latino queer community here. We, yeah, but if you don't have the money to access it... Uh, and I didn't know anyone in it, so and I, I had spent summers in Portland, so I was familiar enough with the city to know that there was... There was an urban culture there where I could, I could work that out. For me, like the you know growing growing into my queer self and accepting my queer self and becoming an artist were kind of this intertwined process. You know, and once once that leveled out and I normalized it, then I was fine with coming back to New York, and becoming one person. Because for a long time there was East Coast Charlie and West Coast Charlie, oh, and East Coast Charlie didn't talk about his private life on the West Coast. And, you know, West Coast Charlie tried to forget a lot of things that East Coast Charlie dealt with as a kid. So when I came back in 2006, I said, I'm going to be one person for the rest of my life. And you're either in or you're out. Wow. And, That's um, interesting. One you know, person for the rest of your life. Yeah. So when did you stop touring? I stopped playing music uh, around 1990. Around 2000, 99, 2000, and oh, around that time... Around I Y2K. Around there, yeah. And Another around that time, I started, interestingly, because um, I came out in like 1992, so I started collecting, I started scribbling a, a series of short 1992, stories. 1992, so you were, you, were, you were a grown. You were 21. grown, you were 21. Yeah. yeah. What was that like for you? Was it, um, did it go over easy? Did people say... It was easier than I thought. Did people say we knew? My best friend Edgar, who I grew up with, was like, like whatever, um, which was a relief because he's like my brother still. Um, you know, I, I think it's also, it's always hard hardest on the family. And looking back, I think it was hard for my mom. You know, she had to sort of evolve with that because I think she lost friends to AIDS. So I don't know that it was so much about being disappointed that I wouldn't become a father and the family man that she hoped for. Was I know that Which, of course, do. you could have been anyway if you I wanted to. I could have been anyway. It would have been harder back then, but I yeah, could have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 25 uh, years it wasn't ago, for, was it wasn't harder. for me. It wasn't for me. Yeah. I think that, you know, she was more than anything just terrified that yeah, I would she, that she I would su- die. I would succumb to this miserable, you know, gr- gri- grisly fate. Which is now a manageable condition yeah. with medicine. Yeah. So that changes a lot too. That changes it a changes lot. Changes a lot. And that's happened only within what, the last ten years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when so, I came out it was still a bloodbath. I yeah. mean it was it was terrifying. Yeah. I went to Powell City of Books in downtown Portland, a very famous bookstore. It's like our strand. Mm-hmm. And I went I've tried to find every book on AIDS and and the more I looked into it and the more I researched from a science, from a medical point of view even the more the more terrifying it was so, so many creative disciplines were just decimated yeah. across the board and I think we're feeling that we, we you, you definitely feel like we there's, lost there's a generation we lost a generation of artists and wizards and and, and people who were pushing art and culture into a new direction right. look at the timeline of American art or western art and culture mm-hmm. in this case 
Um, we're going to see from about 1980 through about the late 90s, there's, there's going to be this huge just gap there. And I think it's, it's why people complain that, you know, everything's been done and nothing new is being done in music and they keep rehashing things on Broadway. We lost a generation of innovators. This is the perfect sound effect for this. <laughs> danger, danger. We lost the generation. Isn't it I may, yeah, I'm, I may leave this in. This, this underscores mm -hmm. the despair and, and the... A cataclysm. What a cataclysm uh -huh. this was. You know, and I think that um, in, in some ways that really inspired... In the 90s, you saw kind of a backlash. When I sort of came of age as an artist, uh, it was really important for us to claim words like queer, for us to to um, to do what we could to um, what's, to sort of deepen the meaning of, of whatever LGBTQ was trying to reach for. Because yes. I think that there were so many facets of human identity as right. regards sexuality that one, you know, whatever. Pe it's, it's, pe it people would use the word tranny as a badge of honor. Sure. The um, iconic um, performance artist Penny Arcade. Yeah, she's a friend of mine. She, yeah. she yeah. did a show yeah. called Bitch Dyke Fag Hag, Hag Hua. Yeah. I have to say Hua. <laughs> Hua. Hua. I love Penny. Yeah, and that's, uh, and that's um, you know, and mm -hmm. I know that she's gotten backlash yeah. that she continues to use those words yeah, in the sense in which I, they're meant and, and she gets backlash from I, people I that weren't alive that weren't alive when those words were being used I'm really leery of this whole PC craze because I think it's being used for good and I think it's being good well, there, for not good. It, it's a double edged it's a two edged sword it's a two edged sword because we have inclusion we have people with right. disabilities and, and sure. differing and differing us, uh, uh, talents and abilities it, it, people that were not celebrated for who they are sure. now have can a be place at the table have a place at the table and, 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 and they could sit and have a conversation and they I feel agree. like they're, and that's, and that's, they can and, claim and themselves that's right that's the glory of, of celebrating plurality and, yes, and true diversity as regards that yes I, I am with you 100%. But I think, I just saw yesterday, like Stephen King said something about, uh, and a friend of mine took huge offense to it. Um, Stephen King tweeted something about a poet, a white poet who used black American vernacular, who, who had to apologize in, in a piece of creative writing, okay? And my friend said, oh my God, I lost all my respect for him. For and Stephen I, and King I like or the writer that used the vernacular? For Stephen King, for defending this writer who was, who was, who was using a, a manner of speaking that he doesn't speak in to portray a character or, to, or to, to deliver lines. And I think when that happens, when people start telling creative writers, you cannot use, you cannot write dialogue in a culture or subculture outside of your own, what the hell do we write about? You know, I mean, that's to me, that's that's the whole thing about creative writing is that you're you're presenting conflicting viewpoints and and people from different or especially in a city like New York, could you imagine if you were if you were people who if someone told you and you were a creative writer, you can only write New Yorkian characters if you write white. Midwest vernacular, if you write Black Harlem vernacular, if you, if you write dialogue outside of the, only, your, the culture that you grew up with at home, you're being politically incorrect. And I think in creative writing, it gets really dicey. Because you don't always portray characters from your background. No, then it's stupid. That means I can only dance salsa. 
And I can't See, even really a, dance over it. I, sh I shouldn't, I shouldn't like punk rock. I should only, right. I should only a, listen no, to funny all-stars and Mark Anthony. As a creative writer, I have to ignore all that because there's nothing worse than being immersed in a piece of writing when it's flowing through you and it's coming, it's coming yeah, from yeah, that yeah. mysterious place to be second-guessing yourself the entire time is just going to offend someone. I, so It's hard. You know what I think, Charlie? I think it's because the pendulum just swung so far yeah. one way. It's become obsessive. It has to swing people so far the other way offended. before, before it can be in the people, middle again. And we have to, to deal offended. with it. And if yeah. you're, but if you're caught on the wrong side of it, God no, help I know. you. It can God destroy you. your career. You, you say one thing in a t offhand thing yeah. in a tweet and then Off that's it head. it's again head. heads on sticks heads <laughs> on sticks i you know internet justice is kind of like the Salem witch trials again mm -hmm. you know instead of like putting your feet in stocks yeah. you know or like getting like 50 lashes with like a, mm -hmm. a, a tree switch right. you know now you just get excoriated on the internet but now you get docked there seems, there, there yeah. seems to be no no. Oof. there's no mediating there's no sort of mediating measures well, set in place we're, we're you're either right so it, w whether you're like the, the, the Becky at the sorority in Montana oh, the Becky you know I, I wearing like, I like how you wearing a Becky. poncho and a sombrero yeah. to a Halloween yeah. party Right, <laughs> or if you're some writer of color who's who's who is portraying characters that are different from your own culture as a means to um, convey to, the to, arc to, of to the reflect story. culture to be an yeah. artist, yeah, because the characters <laughs> right? are to, simu integral. to simulate life. The characters are integral that's to the story the that you thing. want to tell. So yes. that's and almost, I, that's, I can never yeah. apologize. That's for that. like society yeah. dictating yeah. the stories that you can tell. Oh, God when no. the stories that you can oh, tell no. should be. Your I came from a time choice. where you had to fight to tell the stories you wanted yeah. to tell. You know, and I had a fight for the right to tell a damn story at all. If I would have had the life that my neighborhood prescribed to me, I might not be. I would definitely mm -hmm. not be sitting here with no, you I right now. You. And I that's all you. I'm going to say about that. Yeah, yeah, we. Can. <laughs> 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 I feel it. <laughs> fire. We we on fire. F I Y A H. Mm -hmm. So what? precipitated you thinking that you wanted to move back mm -hmm. to New York after spending literally half your life mm -hmm. away from it. Well, do, had you been visiting the East Coast yeah, there yeah, and again? About, once, about once a year. Okay. So when I lived on the West Coast, I did a lot of I did a lot more traveling out there than I did as a kid here. I would go up to Vancouver, I would go down to Mexico, I I started exploring California, you know, hiking on Mount St. Helens and just doing these glorious things I couldn't do here. I moved back to New York after my mom's parents both died within a couple of years of one another. Uh... So like 2003, 2005, something like that. Um, and in 2006, I, and it, it was really hard on her and I wasn't seeing a whole lot of her. I thought, okay, you know, I've, I've done a lot of the things I needed to do on the West Coast and I was writing. At that point, I had decided not to pursue music and to pursue writing. And I really didn't have a community in Portland that understood the, you know, the crossroads of being a queer writer and also being a Puerto Rican identified or Latino identified writer. I got one or the other in different forums. Well, not a lot of Puerto Ricans in Portland. No, no, we're <laughs> Latinos, you know, yeah. so it's very different. Yeah. Uh, most of my Latino friends were of Mexican heritage. Because was, that's... Right, which felt very close. That's the West Coast. It felt very yeah. close, but it's, it's very different, too. So. Did, you, did you have to show them how to make mofongo? No, I don't know how to cook. <laughs> I'm, I'm a professional mofongo consumer. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I started researching, and I, I saw that there was a Pregones Theater, and Charles Rice Gonzalez was doing stuff. And these names started coming up, and I started seeing that there was 
a queer Puerto Rican art scene happening in New York, and I wanted to come and meet these people. And, and you know, eventually, I, I became part of it through collaborations. But that's really what sort of prompted me to come. Um, so you said you would you had you were done with music and you were mm-hmm. doing your writing. I'm going to assume that if you were with this touring band, you made part of your living at least as a touring musician <laughs> for those years. No. Not even loosely. No, so we what, lost money. What did you do for a day job all that time? I worked at a gallery store, um, which uh, afforded me a lot of flexibility in taking time off. And we did a little regional tours, so sometimes we'd be gone for like 10, 10 days, two weeks through like Eugene and Missoula, Montana and Seattle and other places, Spokane and other places. So I wasn't going on national tours. It was mostly West Coast and regional regional tours. Yeah, a couple of them. Um, And I was working at a gallery store. So So what what kind of writing were you doing? Were you doing short stories? Were you I started writing pornography. Really? PC people better cover their ears now because... Mm. You writing a web series? Were you writing books? I was writing short stories for erotica anthologies. Okay. Yeah, so I got... Started publishing those in 2003. I, it's, I find it interesting yep. that you said you were writing pornography yeah. as opposed to saying I was writing erotica. Right. I'm, I'm kind why, of why, why did you use that ch- deliberate choice uh-huh. of word? Because people think, I think that pornography and erotica are very different. Um, but I think that people just assume if you're writing uh, sexual content that it's, it's, that it's, it's base and sort of coarse in, in a way that uh, pornography is. But really, it was really erotic, erotic fiction. Um, my, the, the, the early work didn't have a lot of... Um, there was like the physical sex and there was the organs and all that, but really it was all about sort of the, the psychological states of mind that sort of precede uh, sexual activity and sort of that tension. So even early on, I was writing very suspense-driven erotica, which has sort of set the stage for the fiction that that would... Do. And then I stopped writing erotica because people sort of expected that from me. Mm, and I yeah. had all these other okay, ideas that were it. not erotic, but it was a good way to sort of get my name in... So, so you sold these stories? Well, not for much money, but yeah, about five or six of them. That's So you're like in an anthologies or something like There's that? There's a few, or? yeah. I don't I don't really... Well, we don't have to say what they are. No, people can find well, we out. We can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what they're going to do? They're going to GTS now. They're going to yeah. Google that I've shit. I've been included in like the best gay erotica. And there's a few out Good. there. And you, but you're making a name for yourself, but started, that's like yeah. a type of name, and yep. maybe you want to expand beyond yeah. that name. Yeah. I get it. I told. I told you. I didn't it. want to be confined to. Just, right. You know. Right. I get it. Like East Coast Charlie and West Coast Charlie. Yes. Yes. So okay. So you came back to New York. Um, now this is what I want to know. How did you find your way into arts administration and mm-hmm. arts advocacy? Uh, again, that was pretty organic. I, but you moved back here twelve years ago in two thousand six. Yeah, and I had just some like retail gigs uh, that were sort of a, a continuation of the work I did out west. And then I think in two thousand. Nine or 2010, the Puerto Rican writer Myra Santos Febres uh, from Festival de la Palabra was put in touch with me through a mutual friend, and they wanted to start doing readings in, in New York. They wanted to sort of continue, bring some of the readings they were doing in San Juan every October to do readings in New York. So you're fully bilingual? Yes. That's fantastic. And that, that really helped because I yeah. had to communicate with a lot of people who didn't speak English. and um, So basically I started curating or coordinating uh, lectures and different literary uh, events every October for about five years. And then I had my own reading series in the East Village from 2008 to 2000. Well, Penny Arcade used to come read. What was the name of your reading series? It was series? called Panic and then Hispanic Panic. 
Yeah. I remember seeing that. Yeah, that was my reading series. Oh my god. So Panic, Hispanic Panic, um, was 2008, 2011, and then when that folded, I started working. I went back from the LGBT writing community back to sort of the Latino, Latin American writing community um, as a way to just learn and, and, and network and meet uh, amazing people. And it was through that work that the Bronx Council on the Arts approached me in 2013 to see if I'd be interested at that time in just directing the Writers' Center, which I accepted. And then from directing the Bronx Writers' Center, that sort of grew until I, I eventually got promoted to deputy director. So you yeah. were one of the... So you were like like a... a not a queso grande, but a queso mm-hmm. mediano. Yeah. Queso <laughs> a mediano, medium cheese. Queso mediano. So it was only like the executive director on top of you, basically? Yeah, well, we went through a period of transition after the, the executive director who hired me, Deirdre Scott, had some health issues. She had an aneurysm, and, and she wound up resigning in 2016, I believe. And then most of 2017, we had no director, so I was sort of... Why didn't they make you the director? Well, I, it takes a lot of experience. Uh, you know, oh, well, you probably, uh, did, you probably didn't have the director, years in, in... An executive yeah. director yeah. wears many, many hats. And, and now I wanted to back then, and now I'm glad I didn't. No, I'm you know, thinking about it. That was a dumb thing for me to say, because no. to, in order to be an executive you know director, you need to have so many years behind you yeah. with nonprofits yeah. and agencies and managing exactly. stuff. And so not, there were some of the skills yeah. I yeah, had, yeah. but yeah. there were others that but, I did yes. that I worked on. Um, but you know, then I, BCA and I decided to part ways um, just a few weeks ago, um, and I, I'll probably collaborate with the organization, you know, into the future if it's if it's possible. But I, at this point, I just want to. I think I were, I gave so much of my time and energy to that organization in the last four and a half years that a lot of my own projects got delayed. Mm. So it, it's like we were talking about before yeah. with the, yeah. the 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 pendulum swings yeah. one way yeah. and then it has to swing the other way before it can find equilibrium. So what where has your writing been taking you lately? Well, I think um, after I sort of worked out all of my queer protagonists. <laughs> Which I you got to your do. queer out. I got out of the way. And it's true. They say when, when people move into novel it writing, it's like you tend to be, you know, as much as you try to mask it, you, you're very autobiographical in the beginning. And then I think once you start to learn writing and once you study writing craft a little more, you start to move away from the autobiographical stuff into broader territory. So for me, um, as someone who grew up hearing that there was no such thing as Puerto Rican writers, and I had to sort of throw myself into the middle of that community, to, you know, years later to to do my own investigation, um, I've been working on a new. It's speculative fiction, so there's erotic elements, there's all of the weird, darker elements of, of earlier stuff that I did, but these stories that I'm working on now are set in Puerto Rico. Um, the one that I'll be reading from is actually a story that my great-grandfather used to tell my mother, uh, that my mother used to tell me. Really, it's kind of creative nonfiction, but um, it's, they're all set in Puerto Rico. And for me, now that I know the island better, because we, I did, we didn't go when I was a kid. I started going to Puerto Rico in my 30s. Um, and I it's, just wanted to experience and see all of it, because when I travel, I'm, I'm ruthless. You know, I barely sleep, and I... Walking, walking across the island in, in, in a day if I have to. Um, and once I did, a, I did a lot of historical research. Uh, I did a lot of research on this, the towns that my family was from. It's a way to explore my family history in the framework of suspense and terror stories. Wow. Which were something that, affect, that sort of touched me when I was younger. So I was really fascinated by the, um, Jack London's Wolves. 
Um, and it's like really kind of like dorky boy literature, but the stuff that's set in the Yukon and these very severe weather conditions and the wolves are looking to turn on their masters because they're hungry and the Edgar Allan Poe stories, Washington Irving, the Headless Horseman. When I was in elementary school, those, that kind of storytelling enthralled me. It, I, it just did something. I don't know what it is. And then years later, my mom's telling me these stories her grandfather used to tell her. And he died in 1974 when I was three, so I don't remember him. I, there's photos of us together, but I don't remember him. Um, when she started telling me these stories that he used to tell her, I thought, I've been making up stories all this time, and I have like this treasure box of family tales that if I don't do something with them, they're going to go to the grave. Wow. So the new collection is a, it's a combination of um, these hybrid stories that begin with little anecdotes my mom remembers combined with stuff that I also invented in a similar style and there's 14 of them so. does it have a name yet? Fantasmas, Puerto Rican Tales of the Dead. Wow. Yeah. And a little Pascal tells me you have a little snippet of something to uh, present a for us today. A little Pascal, the little fish. Yeah, well, you know, people say a little birdie told me, but like this, this, this is the, this fish, is the fish out of Bagua show, so it's a Pascal. A little snippet from Fantasmas, Puerto Rican Tales of the Dead by Charlie Vasquez. Tiempo muerto. Roosters cried through the night. Juan Serra pulled his wheezing mule toward his neighbor's property in Corozal early one morning, the moon burning sick yellow. Estrella grunted on the upward incline, hauling the dead load along the dark country road. The ritual endured after years of heartache and hunger. Night creatures mourned as a new day approached. Something isn't right, Juan Serra thought. Guillermo Sanchez wasn't waiting with his mule as was custom. The field worker had yet to recover from his daughter's death from the little work to be found. The Saturday routine of selling fruit and meat at the Plaza Market was the only happiness he knew, time away from the house with his best friend and their burdened beasts. Juan Serra led Estrella to the wooden fence surrounding his neighbor's property. She groaned and backed away when he pulled her toward the shack, refusing to advance. The mule wheezed when Juan Serra yanked harder, her eyes glowing green, something he had yet to see. Breezes hissed through the trees, warning of what was to come. Let's go, you stupid bitch. He tugged on the rope lead, the panic in his chest burning hotter. The mule stumbled backwards, teetering from the load upon her. Estrella moaned low and loud as if taken by a demon from deep in her old body. She choked from the pressure when Juan Serra used all his strength to drag her with him, her legs faltering on the dirty road. The farmer tied her to a post. He shivered while feeling his way along the dirt path leading to the wood and metal shack, which sat hidden amidst the flowering trees of the season. Juan Serra used the fence to guide him through the shadows, whistling while avoiding splinters. The yawning edge of dawn rose to the east. A bellow, beastly gagging, stopped him in the dark. He called to see if someone was there, searching, for the, twilight, searching the twilight for signs. Juan Serra's heart raced faster when a strange scent struck him. What could it be? He turned to see if Estrella was still choking from the struggle, but she wasn't. It came from the darkness ahead, not behind him. What, though? Who's there? The animal in distress longed to be left alone. 
Coño, I'm glad that the sun is still out. <laughs> oh my God! I'm so glad, this is a I'm true glad tale. It, I'm glad it's still daylight. This is a, this this happened in the 1930s. Um, so it's not even like a folklore; it's truth. This is yeah. So what happened? Monserrat is my great grandfather's real name. Uh, he was leading his donkey, or his mule rather, to get his neighbor early one Saturday morning to go sell stuff at market. Uh, they were field workers, so during Tiempo Muerto is the time after the sugarcane was cut, and the workers would have no work for three or four months, so things would really go to shit. You know, a lot of crimes would happen and murders would happen, and uh, he realizes the omen is that the, the friend isn't there waiting for him, which they've been doing this every Saturday for years. Um, and it turns out that Guillermo Sanchez uh, hung himself in the tree. So uh, after where I left off, Juan Serra finds him. Uh, in real life, he was already dead. In this version, I have him. He changes his mind at the last minute, and his fingers are crushed between his neck and the rope. And he's sort of hanging, you know, trying to keep breathing. Um, Juan Serra runs to the house to get his older sons to cut the rope and get him down. And when he gets into the house, the entire family has been slaughtered with a machete. Uh, and at the end, there's a note in Guillermo's pocket that explains what he did. So that's sort of on the heels of um, the yellow plague, of the, the labor strikes. There was a lot of starvation, a lot of what year was third this world, 30, 1933 or something. Wow. My great-grandfather was born in 1898, the wow. year that the U.S. took control of the island. So... Um, to me, it's, it's an, he's an interesting family anchor, even though I didn't know him, because he's kind of a link That's to the past. But there are, th th this one's in this style. Some of them are more contemporary. So yeah. this is a part of, there's 14 stories in this book? Yeah. Is the book complete, or are you going to be doing more? I'm doing the final flash uh, polish edits. And then hopefully in a couple of weeks, I'll start trying to get a Well, that's a book fantastic. Deal. Yeah. So uh, that was going to be um, my next question. So what's up ahead for Charlie Vasquez now? Uh, I'm going to finish this collection, and then I'm going to finish a novel in development that I have that is a, he's kind of a paranormal detective who solves crimes. Uh, he's a homicide detective in San Juan, in contemporary San Juan. It's set now. Um, and he's sort, of, he's sort of just very psychically talented homicide detective who also survived the World Trade Center collapse wow. when he was a rookie NYPD officer. So he's in development still. Um, I've rewritten the novel. I'm rewriting it for the third time, but I think this time I've figured out what was missing in the first two versions. And there's people who are interested in seeing them, but with uh, the detective... That'll probably be a series. Where I, so that's fantastic. That it yeah. seems that you're really taking advantage of your bit of a hiatus between yeah. your your serious job until you have to. Oh, I got I got to get another one. So let's yeah. hope that this works out for you and you can be Charlie Vasquez. Yeah. You could just come into your own. Yes, be, be, people. Instead of East Coast Charlie and West Coast Charlie, no, you'll I just know. be yeah. Charlie. Yeah, I'll be looking. Um, I'll be looking for new work in September. You know, I mean, I, I love the arts administration. I love the mentorship, but I, I'm also really keen on starting my own business, um, but I, I may need to sort of do that on the side while I'm building it and then maybe just go and find some part-time work for a while. So if people want to get in touch with you, yep. or if they want to find out what you're up to, where can they find you? They can find me uh, on Facebook. I have a, a regular profile and I have a page that are just my name, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-V-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z. -E -E uh, on Twitter, I am at Charlie Vasquez. And on Instagram, I am Charlie Vasquez Writer. 
Um, those are the primary. Do you have a website, no, Charlie Vasquez? I'm developing that, so ah. it's best for anyone. Apurate. Who, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that means hurry up. Link up with me on social media, and then when I announce the website, at that time okay. I'll be collecting email addresses. Do you have show. any events coming up? I just got accepted to an anthology for an essay um, on the the gay writer Edmund White. So uh, my friend Tom Cardamoni. Um, is editing that collection. I don't know when the publishing date is. I don't, we don't have a pub date, but they just oh. accepted the anthology. So I have, so I have stuff. You know, publishing is slow. So yes, there's stuff coming slow. down the pipeline, but nothing right. immediately. So, so people will find you, and yeah. then they'll find out. Find me, say That's hello. That's great. Yeah, like them on Facebook. Follow them <laughs> on Twitter because you can. Yay! <laughs> so Charlie, I asked this question of everybody when mm. we get to the end of our chat. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had a word of advice, encouragement or anything for mm-hmm. a young person mm-hmm. who is in a similar situation to where you were when you were mm-hmm. growing up mm-hmm. and that knew that there was more in them than what society around them okay. had thought that they had the right to be. Mm-hmm. And this person knew that they had this burning, these burning desires in them mm-hmm. to be more. What would you tell this child? Find a mentor. And what I mean by that is... Not just a friend, um, maybe not even a professor or, or someone uh, that you meet in an educational setting. But, for instance, if you want to become a set designer in Hollywood, I'm just pulling stuff out of the air here, um, do everything you can to meet anyone you can who has actually done that kind of work. Because I think there's a lot that school can prepare you for. But I think that when you actually get out there and you're editing manuscripts with an editor and you're building stage sets with a stage designer and you're reading lines with an actor, you know, when you actually get out there to do the work, um, I, I think that that's, that has more to teach in some ways than a hundred times the amount of preparation for it. You know, so I think like I believe in education. I believe in, in personal advancement. But um, if you want to set out on a course, if you really want to navigate your life in the, the way, you, in the direction that you want it to go, um, find someone out there who has done the same, who, who has sort of accumulated a lot of wisdom and, and perspective and advice and possibly even networking and connections to sort of help you get in there. Because I see that, especially in the arts Everything's becoming very tribalized again. But at some point, you need to sit down and do the work, you know. And I think you're going you're gonna to get ahead a lot faster under the guidance of, of someone who can teach you from their experience directly. I guess, Charlie, it's kind of like when people want to train for the marathon. Mm-hmm. You need to train with someone that runs faster than you, not mm-hmm. one that runs the same yeah, as you or slower. I see this a lot, especially in the creative writing um, yeah. circles that people fall into, there's a, there's a, it's very cliquish, and people do a lot of preaching to the choir, and I see, I go back and I get on Facebook and I just see people at the same level they were at five years ago because they're not challenging they're themselves. They're not growing. They're not, they're they're not, not, they're they're not, not sitting down themselves. with someone who intimidates them right. to, to find, yeah. you know, to, to I, meet them halfway I somewhere. Think, I think you have to be a little scared. You have to be terrified. But what I would do differently you know, is find someone who, who dedicated their life to writing craft at an earlier age to sort of save me time that I've had to spend wandering to find things on my own. So that's it. 
Wise words from a wise man. Thank you for being on Fish Out of Agua, Charlie Vasquez. Thank you so much. We always end with a hug on the air. <laughs> hug on the air. <laughs> She's very huggy. I love the, the hug on the air is the best part of the show. Yay. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Caitlin Need Donovan. The song is called Melodramatica. It's a single from 1995. Caitlin is a violinist and composer. She's very active still today, but in the mid-1990s, she was in Portland and had a band and toured around with a large group of musicians, of which Charlie Vasquez was a guitarist, and he played guitar on that song. I totally love when people have all these different lives going on. It's amazing to hear the trajectory of somebody, like the work that they did when they were young and the work that they do when they're older, and who knows what the work they're going to do when they get even older. It's amazing. It's a journey. It's a trip. And there's no destination because there's no there there. Well, 
we have a couple of announcements. Did you know that Radio Free Brooklyn has been partially funded to begin an after-school program with local teenagers starting in 2019? Yep, we have, and help make our dream of teaching Brooklyn teens about media and media making a reality. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash after school and give what you can. Each donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law, and you'll have that fuzzy warm feeling from knowing that you've helped the next generation of radio broadcasters and journalists get a head start. Well, we're going to close this episode with a song that I picked and that Charlie was in complete agreement of because we're both kind of a little bit of a big mouth. <laughs> The song is called Big Mouth Strikes Again. It's by the Smiths. It's from the Queen is Dead album back in 1986. Now stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. And if we're lucky, we'll be back here again and we'll see you next week. Woohoo!